Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. Coming up, Illinois could become just the second state to ban some common food additives. They're found in thousands of products. Supporters of the ban say regulators aren't doing enough to protect the public health. Also, Illinois no longer allows the sale of what are known as assault weapons, but owners of the weapons can keep them. They have to register them with the state, and so far few have done so. We'll talk with a woman who has made helping the homeless her mission. More on an effort to allow terminally ill patients to end their own lives. We'll listen to one group in favor. An Illinois university will have to shell out more money, we'll explain. And the federal student aid form has been a mess this year. Now another problem has surfaced. Students whose parents are non-citizens are unable to complete the form. Those stories and more all ahead on Statewide. This is Statewide. We're glad to have you along. I'm Sean Crawford. Julie Benson of Springfield has been helping the homeless for eight years. She believes it was divine intervention that led her on this path. Maureen McKinney interviewed her for part of an ongoing series. Benson is a 63-year-old retiree, and she's won national and local awards for her efforts. She takes donations of money and goods through her Facebook page called Helping the Homeless in Springfield, Illinois. Tell me how your efforts with the homeless started. January 24th of 2016, I was on my way to church. had God whisper in my ear that I was going to help the homeless people. I always thought when people said things like that, that they were either crazy or making it up. But God did speak into my ear. told my fellow churchgoers, and they said, well, what do you know about the homeless people? And I said, nothing. I went home and started a Facebook page called Helping the Homeless in Springfield, Illinois. I ended up for about a month receiving hats, gloves, hand warmers, scarves. I went downtown to try to find some homeless people. Of course, I didn't know who I was looking for. People started walking by me, and I just asked if they needed anything to keep warm for quite a while until they knew who I was and word spread They're very skeptical. How much are you charging for this stuff? I'm not charging anything. People have donated it. It's free. I'm here to give it out to help you out. Donations just started flowing in. It evolved into me retiring when I was 58. My retirement gift from work was a cargo van. So I started filling up the cargo van with donations. Do you have a sense of roughly how many people you've helped? Oh, wow. Hundreds. I have a part, and the people who donate have a part. Not all of them want to meet up with people, but their part is equally as important because I couldn't do this without the community. And I'm talking Springfield and all the little towns around. I have this whole network going on, uh, reaching out to me. The whole networking thing, I match people up to each other. By no stretch is this a a me thing. It's a we thing. Uh, It's a God thing first. I I go out seven days a week. I go out at all hours. I take food to people who are on the street. I take sleeping bags, blankets, uh, you know, long underwear, socks. And I am overwhelmed with messages and voicemails and posts on my Facebook page I have this, I have that, I have silverware, I have dishes, I have a bed. I will never call anybody and say, can you do this? 
because I don't know what's going on in their life. I post things on Facebook. It's totally at will. I don't solicit people for money. They send me money because they know that things are getting done and I work with what I get. I have no monetary goal. Whatever I get, I work within those guidelines. I don't purchase things that I get donated. Some of the agencies will reach out to me. I'm, I'm kind of a Band-Aid. I'm the person that people call when they want to go home. They don't want to live here anymore. They, they're tired of being homeless. They've got family that have reached out to them. They want to go home. I've sent people to Florida and Tennessee and Arkansas and Michigan and Wisconsin and Arizona. Most of the churches don't do those things. And the agencies don't do those things. I can do things that some of the agencies can't do. Everybody who's on the street has a different problem. And I don't want to be locked into just doing this. Can you tell me some of the problems that the homeless people you've dealt with have had? Some of them had sexual abuse by a family member or a a neighbor or uh, somebody that that was trusted uh, toward them. That's a huge traumatic thing in people's lives. Women are raped on the street. They don't always come forward to get the police involved because sometimes the person who is doing the raping is so popular among the men that the woman is afraid to come forward because of the backlash. Fentanyl is terrible on the street. It, it's just known amongst the homeless community. You know, they grieve their own people dying. Alcohol abuse, I, I've had some of them tell me that they drank when they were in their teens with their father. Who does that? Some of them did drugs with their parents. Who does that? People that are dysfunctional. So then society has to step up after that and help people who have these problems. Some of them are on the sex offender list. Some of them dated a girl that was 17 years old and the parents were okay with it, but grandma didn't like it and pressed the issue and they go to prison for that. And then it follows them the rest of their life. Sometimes starting all over for people is really hard. I hear from them, I'm having a tough time starting over. I want to leave that life behind, but nobody will give me a chance. And they just keep getting knocked down. They can't get into housing for certain reasons. They can't get a job. They, they can't even get into a sober living house because sometimes there's not enough of them. And when you carry baggage with you, that's why they turn to drugs because it's momentarily, it's their way of forgetting their problems. And, and it's, it's tragic. It's, I mean, we've got, we've got more homeless people in this town than we did when I started eight years ago. It, we need to do better. We need to do better to get it manageable generational dysfunction where it just keeps happening you know because people don't know better uh some of the people that i work with um don't know some basic life skills in order to function in a normal 
atmosphere. I never, never thought that there was so much trauma out there until I started working in the homeless community. It's rampant. What makes you think that the homeless population in Springfield has increased? Well, the number of phone calls that I get and people who are displaced constantly, and now it doesn't have anything to do with COVID. And I get at least one or two phone calls every day of somebody who's displaced. Some of them come here seeking help because for years and years and years, people were told Springfield's the place to go. They've got services. You're more of a, an individual here as opposed to trying to get services in Chicago where you're just another number. Um, and so people will come here. Well, um, you know, we're, we're kind of overwhelmed too right now. Um, lots and lots more young people on the street than there ever were. That's Julie Benson. She's founder of Helping the Homeless in Springfield, Illinois. And we have more about her efforts and how to contact her. A link is on our show page. Illinois lawmakers adopted a statewide ban on the sale of assault-style weapons over a year ago. The measure allowed people to keep firearms bought legally before the ban took effect if they register the weapons, but very few people have done so. We looked at the registration rates across the state and by county. Justin Bull talked with our statehouse reporter Mawa Iqbal and data reporter Amy Chin. Amy, what do the numbers show about assault weapon registration? Yeah, so data from the Illinois State Police shows that there were 29,000 people registering banned assault weapons, ammunition, and accessories before the January 1st deadline under the law, which is called the Protect Illinois Communities Act. But just to put that number into context, we looked at the registration rate among licensed gun owners and found that that 29,000 number actually represents just 1.2% of all licensed gun owners in Illinois. Yeah, 1.2% seems very low. Uh, Mawa, why are registration rates so low? Yeah, so I was talking to um, Adam Winkler earlier this week. He was a UCLA professor who studies gun policy. And he was saying that, you know, Illinois is not unique in the sense that any gun registration historically in any part of the country has been quite low. Registration rates have been quite low. And he says that the biggest reasons for this is that, you know, one, People may not even know that the law exists. You know, they, they just don't maybe pay attention to the news or, or they're not familiar with gun policy, so they just don't know that they have to register. There's also, too, uh, quite a few people who own these types of firearms who do so out of a political statement or, or they, they want to sort of make a statement that, you know, no one has the right to take my guns away. There's that reason. There's also, too, in Illinois specifically, many different lawsuits have been filed against this law, challenging it on its constitutionality, both in state and federal court. And and it's something that I've been hearing, too, that people are, are really confused as to, you know, what were the outcomes of these lawsuits? Is the law still in effect? So there's also that to consider. Right. And Amy, you looked at registration rates by county as well. Were there certain areas that had higher or lower registration rates? Yeah, definitely. Um, Statewide registration rates are low, but we found that the lowest rates were actually in rural counties downstate. 
So places like Jasper, Calhoun, White Counties, they had the lowest rates. Um, but the places with the highest rates were these more populous counties around urban centers like Kendall and suburban Chicago. Um, but one outlier actually was Cook County itself, which is by far the most populated county in the state. But um, it actually had a registration rate that was lower than most other urban counties. And we think that might be because, you know, it had a similar assault weapons ban um, put in place over a decade ago in 2013. Hmm, interesting. Mao, what's been the response from local law enforcement in these rural downstate counties? There isn't really a way for law enforcement to really enforce the law. Like, it's not like they are going door to door, knocking on people's, you know, doors to be like, hey, do you have an AR-15? And if so, is it registered with the state? But but regardless of that, you know, when this law first went into effect a year ago, we, we counted that there were about 80 or so sheriffs across the state that said that they were not going to be complying with this law. Yeah, a lot of people downstate really were upset with the law and found it to be unconstitutional in the sense that it violated their Second Amendment rights to bear arms. A lot of the lawsuits that I mentioned earlier that were filed in state and federal courts were coming out of downstate courts and people who represented downstate gun groups. So it's definitely there's been a lot of contention from, from this part of the state for sure. Well, thank you both for your reporting on this. I've been speaking with State House reporter Mawa Iqbal and data reporter Amy Chin. The city of Aurora remembered victims who lost their lives in a warehouse shooting five years ago this month. Yvonne Booz has more from the ceremony. Oh, say can you see? Family, friends, and city officials sat in a dimly lit room at Bell Sal Banquet Hall. They were given battery-operated candles to use throughout the service. The room was filled with emotion as people greeted each other with warm hugs. On February 15, 2019, Gary Montez Martin killed five men and injured six at the Henry Pratt Company in Aurora. Let us raise our candle in honor of Russell Byer, Vincente Juarez, Clayton Parks, Josh Pinker, and Trevor Wayner. That's Aurora Mayor Richard C. Irving calling out the names of the five men who lost their lives. Mayor Irving recounts the events of the day. He remembers when the call came in about the active shooting. In the minutes that followed, things were fundamentally, fundamentally changed. People had been shot and lives had been lost. In a matter of minutes, we became the very city we watched on the news over and over, year after year. That day not only changed the city, but also the lives of the victims' families. Ted Byer is the father of Russell Byer. He says he visits his son's grave twice, sometimes three times a day. That's my life, that's my heart. That's my heartbeat right now. That's what keeps me going. I've seen, I've seen death from the war. Never dreaming, I worked there for 40 years. At Pratt with him. Abby Parks is the widow of Clayton Parks. She was there with her mother and five-year-old son. Other people's grief can be hard. So when a whole entire community grieves with you, remembers with you, lets you know that the people that you loved aren't forgotten, it means a lot. Clayton Muhammad is the senior advisor to the mayor. He says the city not only wants to remember the date of the tragedy, 
but also the date of the victim's birth. We hope to turn those days into celebrations. And so to the families, you have our direct contact info and we have yours. And however you like to celebrate your loved one's day in Aurora, know that Mayor Irving and the city of Aurora support you. Parks wants the community to continue to say the names of these men well beyond the evening's event. These were five extraordinary men who obviously left a really large impact on everybody that they touched. They lit up rooms, they were energetic, they were family men, they um, had a lot left to give to this world and unfortunately they don't get to give it. So say their names, remember their stories, give life to their legacies. A granite memorial bench was revealed during the ceremony. The names of Russell Byer, Vincente Juarez, Clayton Parks, Josh Pinkard, and Trevor Weiner are engraved underneath the words in remembrance of, with a tragedy date listed at the bottom. This bench, which was donated by the Henry Pratt Company, will sit outside of the Aurora Police Headquarters. I'm Yvonne Booz. Let us say his name, Russell Byer. The song continues like a rainbow fading in the twinkling of an eye, gone too soon. Let us lift our candle in honor of Vicente Juarez. Let us say his name, Vicente Juarez. Like the loss of sunlight on a cloud. We have more ahead on Statewide. We're back Stay on right Statewide. Here. I'm Sean Crawford. The launch of the revamped federal student aid form known as FAFSA was supposed to make getting help paying for college easier. But for many students from immigrant families, it has shut them out. They're all U.S. citizens, but their parents are not. And an error bars parents without Social Security numbers from completing their part of the form. The Department of Education says it's working to correct the problem. Lisa Curry and Phillips spoke to three Chicago-area high school seniors who fear the issue may jeopardize their ability to afford college. Joanna Moreno-Dimas has wanted to be a teacher since the fifth grade when she mentored a reading buddy. I was assigned to this little kid. I, it was a little boy. And even after the week we were supposed to, like, switch, he didn't want to switch. He, like, stayed with me. I want to study elementary education. Right now my number one school is Illinois State, and like that's an hour away from here, so I'd have to pay room and dining. Tuition is, is high, <laughs> even for a public school. My mom works at a hotel. My dad has his own business, but of course sometimes there's not a lot of work to go around. Joanna is counting on financial aid to be able to afford college. As an American citizen, she's entitled to federal help, but her parents immigrated from Mexico and are undocumented. The new FAFSA was supposed to allow parents like hers, without social security numbers, to verify their identities online. But that feature isn't working. That's forcing them to try to do the process manually by calling the FAFSA helpline. I called about seven times before I finally got someone. That was about three weeks ago, four weeks ago now. Um, and I still haven't gotten any updates back, so I don't know what to believe anymore. Congress ordered the Department of Education to overhaul the form because of complaints it was hard to use. Now some students who are eligible for federal aid are frustrated because they can't use it at all. Like Naomi, she's gotten into a couple of colleges. She wants to study to become a forensic psychologist or crime scene investigator. Naomi asked that her last name not be used because her mother, a single parent, is undocumented. 
you'll get to the point of the website where you could fill out information, but then it would just like take you right back to the beginning to start over again and make you put in the social security number, but you already said that you didn't have one. So the website's just not helpful. Naomi is determined to be the first in her family to get a college degree. So she's called and called. The first time I ever landed them, like on the phone, I was talking to this lady and she said, oh, um, we need your mom to call us because you can't be creating the account for her. I was telling her, I'm like, I'm not trying to create the account for her. I'm trying to help her create the account. My mom doesn't really understand this stuff because we've never actually had to do it before. It's just kind of upsetting because like you've been doing this for how many years and you still can't figure out a way how to make it work. Naomi wonders how much money will be left by the time her application is processed. So does her classmate, Guadalupe. Federal aid is handed out until it's gone. Guadalupe also doesn't want her last name used because her parents are undocumented. She's already been accepted to Northwestern University. Tuition there costs $64,000 a year, but most students receive financial aid. That's why submitting the FAFSA is so important. It definitely keeps you up at night, like thinking about it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. We would call like the number in order to verify my mom's identity. And I would just wait for like hours and hours. It would be like seven in the morning. And my mom would ask me like, did they answer yet? And like, I had to say no. All three graduating seniors say they just want to be treated like any other student. Here's Naomi again. We're just kids trying to get our stuff done so we can go to college and pay for it. The only difference is that our parents have social security numbers, and I feel like that shouldn't separate us from getting help. The Department of Education doesn't have a date for when the problems might be fixed. Some colleges have pushed back their enrollment deadlines to give students more time to figure out which schools they can and can't afford. Now all Naomi, Joanna, and Guadalupe can do is wait. Lisa Corian Phillip, WBEZ News. Bradley University will pay a higher interest rate and need to maintain a larger financial cushion. That's after violating the bond covenants on some $17 million worth of debt last year. Tim Shelley has the story. WCPU obtained documents filed with the Illinois Finance Authority that said the university violated its continuing covenant agreement with PNC Bank for the year ending May 31, 2023. The specific provision breached required the university to maintain a debt service coverage ratio of not less than 1.25 to 1, with 1 representing the minimum net operating income required to service the annual debt. Debt service coverage ratios are a measure of cash flow adequacy. Lenders typically want borrowers to finish out the year with a cushion, or just a little bit more money than what's needed to service the debt. Jim Coford, the interim chief financial officer at Bradley University, didn't sugarcoat his assessment about what happened. We're not going broke. We had a bad year, and that bad year threw off the debt service coverage ratio. It's just, um, it was a bad, you know, what can you say? It was a bad year. Students, students were down and uh, spent too much money, basically. While a covenant violation isn't considered to be as serious as missing a payment, Municipal Market Analytics partner Matt Fabian says it's still a red flag. Universities in strong financial health don't have technical defaults. So there's clearly um, challenges that the school is trying to work through. PNC Bank could have called in the $17 million in debt immediately, 
but instead agreed to waive the university's bond covenant violation in exchange for new conditions to the terms. That includes an interest rate hike and a gradually increasing debt service coverage ratio. The required ratio decreases to 1.0 for the year ending this May, but will gradually increase up to 1.5 in 2026. Fabian says that's a reflection of the increased risk the lender takes on by waiving the covenant violation. PNC Bank declined the comment for the story, citing client confidentiality. Rushika Radhakrishnan is a credit analyst with S&P Global. She says a covenant violation isn't necessarily cause for a ratings change by itself, but rather that's determined on a case-by-case basis. She says while Bradley's covenant violation was triggered by a larger-than-expected operating deficit, PNC's default waiver and the university making its debt payments consistently are two factors weighing in the institution's favor. She also noted the management actions to control costs like the December cuts. President Stephen Standiford announced back in July of 2023 that the university was running a $13 million operational deficit and would need to slash costs by 10% to right-size spending. Those cuts fell mostly upon academic programming to the chagrin of faculty, who took an unusually public stance in announcing the moves. The Bradley chapter of the American Association of University Professors argues the cuts hurt the university's academic standing. They've also retained legal counsel regarding the cost-cutting process, which they say violated their faculty handbook. Ultimately, Sandiford announced the termination of 61 positions and 15 programs were cut. Jim Kofer defends that move. He says making cuts is difficult, but Bradley is positioning itself to move into the future. It may not be popular. It may not be what you want to do. It may be a change, but you got to stick with the plan and make those necessary changes. Rushika Radhakrishnan says Bradley's overall balance sheet remains solid even through fiscal year 2023. But she says operating performance is something that they're watching closely. They have spoken to us about some financial improvement plan they have in place and the expectation that by 2026 they're expecting significant improvement. Experts say 2023 saw an unusually high number of covenant violations at higher learning institutions around the country. Analyst Matt Fabian says last year saw the most since his company first began tracking them in 2009. There's been talk in the country, right, about how the higher education providers are coming under stress, right, and that there will be problems, and that's been discussed for decades. But last year may have been the year when it actually starts. A new permanent CFO is coming on at Bradley later this year. I'm Tim Shelley. Just this year, most Rockford Elementary schools extended their school day by over half an hour to focus on literacy. Peter Medlin reports on how that initiative is going so far. A group of Washington Elementary School students are working on a phonics activity. This is Power Hour. It's how they use their extra 40 minutes to work on literacy skills. Washington was one of 20 RPS elementary schools that chose to extend their day thanks to federal COVID relief funding. Students arrive a little bit earlier and go home a little bit later. Angelique Malone is the principal at Washington. All the energy towards learning, girl. She says looking at data, they realized that the way they were teaching reading wasn't effective for their students. And digging even deeper, they found that in their previous model, students were spending most of their time learning independently instead of getting direct instruction from their teacher. We just kind of knew we had to do something different to get a different result. And then that kind of 
birthed the vision and idea around our power hour. Assistant Principal Erica Schwanke says that meant they needed all hands on deck. Every teacher in the building is being utilized, so we were able to have smaller group sizes because we're using our enrichment teachers, our title teachers, everybody, social worker. At the beginning of the school year, every student was assessed and placed in groups based on their reading level, not their grade level. So the students doing those phonics lessons aren't in the same class. They're not even all in the same grade. Schwanke says some classrooms have a mixture of second through fifth graders. And she says it also allows teachers to build relationships with different students throughout the building. We can move kids based on if they need more reinforcement or if they need to be you know, advancing further ahead. She says that based on their level, kids are placed on one of two paths. The first one is rooted in phonics. Educators say it's the foundation of literacy. Jab. We're going to change the vowel. It teaches students about the relationship between letter combinations and the sounds they make. And then once you've graduated or cracked the code, we like to say, that you now know how to read, then you move on to more of a comprehension pathway, which is a reading to learn. That involves guided reading and understanding the context of what you're reading. Reading scores across the country have dropped over the past few years, and the Illinois State Board of Education recently released a new comprehensive literacy plan to try to promote research-driven reading instruction. Schwanke says she hopes committing to a data-driven approach gives teachers some stability, since over the past few decades, it's been a pendulum swinging back and forth was a swing to phonics, right? And then it swung to comprehension and, and then we found ourselves in this big hole, right? And so I hope that if we learn anything from that, it's that we need to not just look at one approach to literacy. On Friday, the first group of Washington students is graduating from learning to read to reading to learn. They're holding a graduation ceremony for those 62 students to celebrate the achievement. And Principal Malone believes the literacy model is benefiting more than just those students. She says data from their mid-year assessments is encouraging. We had 46% of our students at or above grade level compared to winter of last year, we only had 26%. So we saw a 20% increase with just these like first few months of school, fall to winter with the adjustments that we made. The federal relief funding ends after this year. But with these results, Malone says it would be a mistake to quit now. We're going to continue even if we don't have the extended times, right? So we'll have to borrow some minutes from here and there within the schedule. But based on our needs here, like it's, it's necessary. It might look a little bit different over the next couple of years. If literacy levels stabilize, they can continue using their program without moving kids around to different classrooms as much. But otherwise, they're just getting started. I'm Peter Medlin. In 2021, Illinois became the first state to require public schools to teach Asian American history. That was on top of teaching the history of LGBTQ people, black people before enslavement and the Holocaust. So how are teachers doing? Illinois public media reporter Emily Hayes spoke with the University of Illinois education professor, Asif Wilson, who has been studying that question. He leads the state's five-month course for teachers on the requirements. You will have a study out soon on where teachers started with the I-3 training, which stands for Inclusive Inquiry-Based Social Studies for Illinois. Can you tell me about your preliminary results? Teachers generally feel prepared to meet the calls of the inclusive American history mandates, all of them, um, no matter how old or new. 
However, there are a number of teachers that feel unprepared. And so until every teacher feels prepared, that means that students aren't gaining access to those critical inclusive learning experiences in schools. And given that teachers are the main conduits of those learning experiences, this is not to penalize them or scrutinize what teachers are doing. I think they're under an immense amount of pressure, but that more work needs to be done from translation of legislation to practice. Is there a bias between teachers who have wanted to sign up for this and teachers who may not be interested in signing up? Do you think that this survey represents teachers as a whole across Illinois? Certainly, we have teachers who are interested, if not engaging already, in inquiry-based and inclusive practices. I, I do think, however, and this is um, informal, just conversations with teachers around why they got involved in this, it's because we're, we're they're getting paid for professional learning, which is nice. It's it, we're not paying them a, 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 any sort of high number. They only get paid four hundred fifty dollars, and it's months. It's five months of intensive work, so it's not a lot of pay. But the pay is the initial carrot. There's professional development hours. Teachers have to do twelve a year, and then I think once they get in the professional learning experience, it's a quality, well designed professional learning experience that engages them in the sort of preparation for, for this sort of stuff. Also, the, the standards in social science have created a milieu of there's something out there. <laughs> I think that's where we're at. There's something new out there. Some people are moving moving towards that at different rates. And I think that's created some curiosity in people um, to get involved in professional learning. I think the impression that a lot of us have is that outside of Chicago, there's a lot more pushback from parents and administrators to teachers who might want to teach more about inclusive Black history or Asian American history. Was that true in the surveys? So out of the 600 or 600 plus survey responses that we received, we found that both um, administration, as we wrote in the survey, school district, school and district administration, and parents and families were generally supportive of both inquiry-based learning in social science and inclusive history in social science. And so this might, you know, butt up against, it doesn't negate the communities that are resistant to these, these sorts of learning experiences. I'm not saying that they don't exist, but the survey data that we, we received illuminated that parents and administration are generally supportive. So that while there may be naysayers, while there may be resistance, there's also a, a large body and community of support for both inquiry-based learning and inclusive American history in Illinois. That was Asif Wilson, a curriculum and instruction professor at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. I'm Emily Hayes. Just ahead on Statewide, we'll hear about Governor J.B. Pritzker's plan for a new state budget. That and more coming up. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Governor J.B. Pritzker proposed a nearly $53 billion budget this week. He wants to put more money toward education and child welfare while continuing to care for the influx of migrants. But not everyone is sold on his plan. Alex Stegman reports. Governor Pritzker had a strong message for those who question Illinois' trajectory. Do not let the doom grifters steal your optimism about what's ahead for Illinois. Our future is bright and opportunity lies ahead. Opportunities that start with Illinois' children. 
Pritzker wants to spend an additional $450 million next year on K-12 education. Much of that comes from a $350 million increase following the evidence-based funding formula. There's also money allocated for a statewide literacy program and grants to help hire more teachers. This is the second year of the governor's pre-K Smart Start initiative. This year, Pritzker wants to spend $400 million, which would, among other things, open another 5,000 preschool spots statewide. Right now, we have over 82,000 publicly funded preschool classroom seats, the highest number in our state's history. And staying on the Smart Start plan, we will achieve universal preschool by 2027. The governor also wants to spend $182 million from the Department of Human Services budget next year to help provide shelter, health care, and other services for migrants being sent to Chicago and the surrounding suburbs. Maybe some of you think that we should just say, this is not our problem, and that we should let the migrant families starve or freeze to death. But that's not what decent Midwesterners do. We didn't ask for this manufactured crisis, but we must deal with it all the same. Pritzker suggests spending $440 million on the programs offering health care to immigrant adults and seniors 42 or older, which is less than this year. Undocumented immigrants are eligible, not asylum seekers who are covered under federal programs. Republicans generally aren't supporting this plan, with many saying they don't want a budget that spends hundreds of millions on non-Illinois citizens. But they're more complimentary than usual. House Republican leader Tony McCombie says there are good things, like fully funding both education and this year's pension payment. But the bad part is, is that we're going to have nine hundred and ten million dollars in tax increases. The governor's office puts that number around eight hundred twenty seven million. He didn't mention it in the speech, but Pritzker is proposing a 20 percent hike to the sports wagering tax from 15 to 35 percent. He also wants to cap certain corporate income tax benefits and limit benefits that discount retailers get. But there could also be some tax cuts like a modest child tax credit for low-to-middle-income families with children three or younger, and permanently getting rid of the 1% grocery tax. It's one more regressive tax that we just don't need. Even if it only puts a few hundred bucks back in families' pockets, it's the right thing to do. That proposal caught Republican State Senator Jill Tracy off guard. It's a Republican idea that she's supported for years, but she wanted more perhaps property tax relief or reducing the gasoline tax. Somehow, she says, the budget keeps growing year after year. There was just a total focus on of increasing this budget, the largest in Illinois history, when why do we have to always have a budget that grows every year? As outlined with cuts and increases taken into account, the proposal for fiscal year 2025 spends $52.7 billion against expected revenue of $52.9 billion. But Pritzker's proposal won't be the final budget. Now, the next phase begins, as lawmakers analyze the governor's plan and come up with ideas of their own. The goal is to present him a budget toward the end of May when they're scheduled to adjourn. I'm Alex Degman. Skittles are one of the most popular candies in the U.S., but they contain an ingredient called titanium dioxide that lawmakers in Illinois are proposing to ban, along with four other food additives. If passed, it would make Illinois the second state behind California to ban ingredients found in thousands of food products that many say are linked to health problems. It would also set up a showdown with the Food and Drug Administration that now allows those additives. NPR's Deepa Fernandez has more on that story. Helena Bodomila-Evich joins us now. She's the founder and editor of Food Fix, a publication that focuses on food policy. Welcome, Helena. Thanks for having me. So what food additives is Illinois trying to ban, and what does the science say about them? So Illinois is trying to ban five controversial food additives. There's brominated vegetable oil, 
more commonly known as BVO, potassium bromate, propylparaben, red dye number three, and also titanium dioxide, which you just mentioned. And all of these additives have been either banned or very strictly limited in Europe. The research for each of them is, is different, but just to give you one example, red dye number three was actually banned from cosmetics by FDA in 1990 over cancer concerns. And each of these has their kind of own debates about the state of the science. But for other regulators in other countries, there have been enough questions and enough concerns to go ahead and ban them. Mm. So what kind of foods are they showing up in? Like we mentioned Skittles. Uh, where else are we seeing some of these food additives? So titanium dioxide is a really common whitening or brightening agent. So it might be used in something like ranch dressing or a frosting to make it whiter or brighter. Um, for candies, it's used to brighten the color, and it's pretty common. The Environmental Working Group estimates that the additives that are trying to be banned by both Illinois and also California, which just banned four of these, are used in thousands and thousands of products in the U.S. So who is against this? Why would we not want to ban them if there are serious questions about them and their health impact, and they're banned in other countries? So it's a really interesting debate. Basically, right now we have industry groups particularly saying that, you know, this is a question for the Food and Drug Administration. This is a federal question. So they don't like the idea that states would be deciding which additives are banned or not in the U.S. The state leaders that I've talked to say, look, you know, FDA has been really slow to act or even re-review the safety of some of these additives and they're tired of waiting. So they're kind of taking matters into their own hands. Okay. And um, the industry really wants certainty, and they want national-level policy. So back in Illinois, Democrats control the levers of power. Do you think this is likely to pass there, given that? And, and if so, what effect will this have, given that California is the other very popular state to have already done so? Yeah, I think it's fairly likely to pass in Illinois. Um, well, I'll be watching it really closely. If it does, it'll be interesting then to watch, you know, do industry groups challenge this in court? Do they try to argue that maybe there's federal preemption here, right? That the that Illinois doesn't have the right to do this. That kind of an argument could end up all the way in the Supreme Court. I mean, these are some really big legal questions about what states have the right to do. And it could be a while before it's settled, but this puts a lot of pressure on FDA to re-review some of these chemicals. And in one case, in the case of um, brominated vegetable oil or BVO, which California just banned, FDA has actually recently proposed pulling that from the market. So in some of these, FDA may end up banning them. Uh, in some cases, they may end up affirming the safety. So a lot of eyes are on FDA now. Helena, how much do you think we, the regular consumers, actually know about this? I mean, I feel like in California, we're probably a little more educated because we've been through the process. But I, I imagine there's many people out there who just want to eat a healthy salad dressing and not have chemicals in it or, you know, want their kids to have candy that isn't, you know, potentially hazardous to their health. I think consumers don't put a whole lot of thought into what the individual ingredients are. There's just this um, this hope or this, I guess, trust. Um, trust that we have, right, that regulators are on top of this. And 
One of the big criticisms of FDA in recent years has been that the agency just hasn't been as active in this area. Um, the agency is definitely shifting their stance and taking a much more active role, trying to you know make sure that anything that's on the market where there are concerns that FDA is taking a look at that. And so I think we will see a more active position from that agency. And consumers, frankly, expect that that's the position that FDA is already taking, right? We sort of assume that that's the case. And so this is a, an area to watch for sure for, for consumers that are concerned about, you know, what they're consuming and what the ingredients mean. Food policy journalist Helena Bodomila-Evich, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. A proposal at the State House would require any law enforcement agencies that are encrypting their police scanner transmissions to still make their live activity available to the media. Democratic Representative LaShawn Ford is the bill's sponsor. He says the live information would allow people to inform authorities more quickly and effectively. We believe that anybody that's regulated by the FCC and licensed by the state, we believe they they are trustworthy and that they will report real-time crime and will not interfere with law enforcement, but will actually be a partner with the law enforcement to um, help catch criminals. Ford says the plan would allow community members to help each other and create safer neighborhoods. Some Illinois lawmakers want to allow terminally ill patients to end their lives on their own terms. A new proposal in the state Senate would let people with a prognosis of six months to live or less get a prescription for medication that they would administer themselves. Kadeen Bennett from the ACLU of Illinois joined Alex Degman from her office in downtown Chicago. She says they've been advocating for this since the late 1990s. I think we're at a point where people understand that this issue is a really important thing. The idea that somebody who is terminal, so they are, have a prognosis of six months or less to live, deserve the opportunity to um, have access to medication that would allow for them to end their life in a peaceful manner. How safe and effective are these medications that we're talking about here? So they are very safe, like most medications that you're allowed to take uh, for end-of-life care in other states. So we don't know of any examples in other states where it's been um, harmful to a patient. It's effective in that it's a, a prescription that a doctor gives a patient who is terminal so that they're able, you know, there's some guardrails in place. The patient has to be able to ingest the medication. And once they ingest, they uh, transition into a peaceful sleep and then um, they're, they are able to end their suffering. Are there safeguards in place to ensure people aren't making a decision out of haste? Because, you know, they're, I mean, they just got the worst news of their life, right? How does this legislation ensure that they're able to sit back for a minute, take a beat, fully take stock of the situation and not rush into any major decisions right away? 
Yeah, so similar to other states, um, the way that this would work is that you would have to um, have a diagnosis of being terminal, so six months or less to live. You'd have to be an adult, so somebody who's over 18 years of age. You would have to be able to have the mental capacity to make the decision for yourself. So you would go to a doctor, say, you know, doctor, I'm terminal. I would like to explore medical aid in dying. Uh, you would have to do um, an oral request. Then there is a um, uh, another guardrail of having a written request. And then no less than five days after your first oral request, you have to make another oral request. So at the second oral request, so that's oral, written, oral, then you are able to um, at, move forward in the process. Now, are all doctors going to be required to participate in this and write prescriptions if that's what their patients want? Nope. Uh, we have the uh, healthcare right of conscience law in Illinois. No doctor is required to provide this care. No medical health professional is required to, to, to participate in this care at all. It does say that if I if you're my doctor and I come to you asking for that care and you don't provide it, there is some built-in language that would require that the healthcare provider make sure you transfer that patient's records in a timely manner, which is important for somebody who's terminal, and make clear that you don't provide that care. And that kind of leads into my next question, which is that, you know, some people are against this. Uh, they, among other things, are saying that conjures up visions of Dr. Jack Kevorkian and assisted suicide. But why is this different? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's unfortunate to combine those two things. We're talking about um, an end-of-life option for somebody who's facing a terminal illness, so six months or less to live. Um, assisted suicide is something that's very different. It doesn't require any kind of terminal diagnosis. For so many people, having this option is so crucial and brings them comfort at the end of their lives, and I think it's really important. I understand that people are opposed to it, but this is a end-of-life option that nobody is forced to, to um, engage in if they don't want to either. They don't have to take it if they don't want to. They don't have to provide this care if they don't want to. That's Kadeen Bennett from the ACLU of Illinois speaking with Alex Degman about a plan to allow terminally ill patients to end their lives with prescription medication that they would administer themselves. That's it for this episode of Statewide. Thanks for being along with us. And don't forget to join us next time. We'll be back with more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. You can find us where you get your podcasts through the NPR app and at nprillinois.org. I'm Sean Crawford. Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois Public Radio stations.